Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. I'm here today with Jane Park, the CEO and founder of Julep. Before launching this impressive company, she held leadership positions at Boston Consulting Group and Starbucks. Part of what makes Jane's story unique and why I wanted to feature her on the What Fuels You podcast is her upbringing. After learning more, it felt to me that the odds might have been stacked against her. She is the daughter of an orphan immigrant. We will touch base on that a little bit later in the podcast. Jane went on to attend Princeton undergrad and Yale Law School. Jane is a wife, a mother, and a very successful entrepreneur who is passionate about empowering women. Welcome, Jane. I'm so excited to be here. Super fun, right? So if it's okay, I want to start it just like break the ice with some rapid-fire questions. Um, So favorite podcast? Positive America. Favorite julep nail color? Uh, Amy. It's a blue. Okay. Oh, interesting. Three words that describe you as a leader? Uh, Empathetic. Um, Gosh. Uh, Fast and uh, innovative. I love that. And how do you like to relax? Over a glass of wine with girlfriends. I'm down. I'm in there. Best late night snack? Kimchi. Okay. Yuck. (laughs) Salty. (laughs) Clearly you're salty, not sweet. And probiotic. Salty, not sweet. I'm all sweet. Favorite thing in your closet right now? I I am really into pants, so... um, Yeah, I I like the pants you're wearing today. Oh, thanks. Yeah, they're cute. What are your favorite pants right now? Project Gravitas um, has this amazing pair of pants that you can actually wash, which is important for me (laughs) as a klutz. Busy, busy, (laughs) busy. Um, Who's a living woman that you admire the most? Uh, Marion Wright Edelman. Okay. Who uh, founded the Children's Defense Fund. I want to hear more about that. (laughs) Um, and finally, what fuels you? Uh, I think honesty, truth, listening to people who actually speak uh, with conviction and uh, with integrity and authenticity. That's an overused word, but, uh, mm-hmm. but I think it makes you sense. know it. Um, you know it when you see it, when you yeah. hear it. Don't you feel like that more as you get older? Absolutely. Yeah. Like no patience for BS. Yeah. You're like, <laughs> okay, I got places to be. I don't need to actually like fake it anymore. I love that. So, um, well, let's dive in. So as I was getting ready for this, I've heard you speak on panels and I've always been kind of blown away. And now I feel like I get to call you a friend and I'm super psyched that you got to do this with us. Um, I was overwhelmed when I started researching you because, um, as I mentioned in your intro, um, so you were born in Korea. I was. I moved to Canada when I was four with my parents. What's your kind of identity and all that, or is it all mishmash? It is a mishmash, uh, especially since now I'm an American citizen. I did that so I could vote in elections here. But I think that a lot of 
the way that I think about the world is defined by the fact that I was an immigrant. So mm -hmm. that is not even like Korean or Canadian. It is sort of the experience of having a home life that is very different from your friends' home lives, of speaking languages that are different, of sort of um, walking between two different worlds every day. Mm -hmm. And how old were you when you learned how to speak English? So I was four. I first uh, went to school and I didn't speak English, actually. So That uh, must have been an interesting... Yeah. All the kids, whenever something bad happened, they would blame it on me because I couldn't say that it wasn't me. And so that was back in the day when uh, you still had to sit in the corner if you did something bad. Like on the naughty mat. Exactly. And so I spent a lot of time in the corner by myself the first year. Well, were you plotting out? You're like, how am I going to get into Princeton? I mean, it, all of these are the kinds of stories that you're, it's not like it was served up for you or someone was showing you the way. No, but I think at every step there was someone who cared, and I think that was an important thing for me. Uh, so in that classroom, his name was actually Mr. Twineman, my kindergarten teacher, and he really just took an interest in me. And actually, when I learned how to speak English, I uh, changed my name from Hyosung. I started just telling everybody that I was Jane. And so... Uh, Jane is so American. <laughs> like, Jane. It was literally from the Dick and Jane book. It's like That's I just wanted awesome. something that... Uh, was not at all different because I didn't at that stage want to be different. And so my parents went in for a teacher-parent conference and, you know, Mr. Twineman started talking about Jane and they were like, who? who? <laughs> That's so awesome. And so were there other teachers who helped shape you? Or you said that people believed in you. Is that your parents? I think it is. Uh, well, my parents, my, uh, you know, various teachers along the way, even a really small but important thing is that I didn't know that you had to take the SATs to apply to American schools. So I had a cousin outside of Princeton who sent me an application. And uh, I went to take the SATs and did not know you had to pay for it. And so I almost couldn't take them. Uh, I was there by myself. My parents had a 7-Eleven store, so they were working all seven wow. days a week, 11 hours a day. And this uh, person behind me, this uh, nice man, said, hey, I will pay for the SATs. Here's my address. Just have your parents write me a check. That's amazing. Yeah, he was so surprised That's that That's like there. restores your faith in humanity, like how people should be... I know. That's I've actually amazing. looked back at, to see if there's any way I could track that person down just to say, like, look what a huge difference huge. you made just by one small moment of kindness. And he didn't have to be. If you think about it, I was, you know, competing against his child. That's uh, amazing. I for love that. spots in a school. Like today, people go crazy over yeah. that kind of thing. It brings out the worst in people. Yeah. So I read about your dad. Um, is this story true? Like, obviously it's true, but I'm kind of like blown away by it that he went home from school. Like, tell me that story. Okay. So he uh, grew up on his own, which makes it really fun to have him as a grandfather. Like when I was having him bathe my kids, he's like, oh, I only had to take a bath once a year in the river. And it's like, well, Dad, we have running water now, so they can take a bath more than once a year. But he grew up on his own because he uh, lost his parents when the border between North and South Korea went up. And uh, on that day, he um, since that day, he has not seen his parents or his brother and sister who were in the north, and then there were three kids in the south. He has a brother and sister who were on the other I side. I mean, this is mind-boggling. Right. I can't wrap my head around it. Well, Seriously. because when they put a border up, they don't tell you in advance. So there was a checkpoint there. And uh, what happened is the checkpoint hardened into a permanent border. So they don't tell you, hey, tomorrow there's going to be yeah, a, a little DMZ. Warning. No, it just 
goes up and and then that's it. But this summer in August, I get a call and it's um, uh, my cousin who's trying to track down my dad. And we're all at my beach house together and I hear my dad uh, break out in song. I've never seen this before or heard anything like this. Not so his behind temperament. his door, yeah, he starts singing at the top of his lungs. It turns out the reason he was singing is because he heard uh, from the Red Cross that his uh, siblings were alive in North Korea. And so his family oh was gosh, part of um, 75 families who got to meet in North Korea. And unfortunately, this is like the pro, like there it was such a roller coaster. It turned out that he couldn't be one of the people who could actually go because only two people from each family could uh, could be there. And so my uncle and aunt from South Korea went and they met my uncle and aunt from North Korea. And so uh, we have a couple of pictures and there were media there. So we have a very short, short oh my video gosh. clip. Please say you're like writing a book or something. Like somebody <laughs> is doing something about this. Like I need more. This is incredible. I am actually uh, in the process what? of writing a book. That's so funny about you this? said that. Uh, you know, this is one of the, the, like the key stories. Someone needs to tell your story. But well, shouldn't this be a movie? That's incredible. Yeah. So I then um, flew with my parents to Korea and we were at my aunt's apartment when she and my uncle came in. And so we just heard like immediately what that was like, um, who, you know, what had happened. What are their lives? So well, we it could, turns this out, could be the whole I podcast. Know. I didn't realize all okay, this. And I want to know about the book. <laughs> I need to know everything. <laughs> we might have three so, hour uh, podcasts. The, 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 um, the, the short version is that it turns out that uh, my grandmother passed away when, um, you know, at six months afterwards and there was a new born baby. And so the aunt and uncle in the north, um, the aunt was seven and the uncle was, you know, a newborn when they were separated. And and he was six months old when um, his mother died. And so my aunt went door to door asking for uh, water and flour to mix together to feed the baby. And she kept him alive. A seven-year-old did. Isn't that crazy? Oh, my gosh. This, yeah, you're writing a book. <laughs> I can't wait to, to read it and follow it. And that's incredible. Okay, so we have so much to get through. How did you end up going from this being your, your kind of story to ending up at Princeton? You know, it wasn't something that was really thought out. My parents said that uh, University of Toronto was, you know, in their view, the best university in Canada. And so I should live home and go there. And so I was desperate. This was my lottery ticket to not have to live at home. Were they strict? Were your parents strict? (laughs) Totally. I think I never went to see a movie. I was never allowed to go to see concerts. Actually, I brought my daughter to Taylor Swift as my very first stadium concert. How are you as a parent? Are you strict? You know, I uh, showed them this article about tiger moms as an uh, (laughs) argument for how I'm not a tiger mom. Uh, You're like, see them? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Frankly, I travel so much. My husband was like, she's not even around enough to be a tiger mom. But uh, what's he like as a parent? Uh, he's really fair. Um, I think he is super thoughtful and uh, co-parenting, especially teenagers, I think is uh, one of the most challenging and fun things we've ever done. Um, I think I was really good at the baby stage Mm -hmm. uh, and I have endless patience for toddlers and tantrums. I don't know why I'm not a very patient person regularly. That's interesting. uh, But I think because I wasn't a typical American teenager, I mean, I had younger sisters. Sisters who I took care of. I cooked dinner. I 
did so much around the house because, um, and frankly, my parents had a, uh, later on um, in my life, they had a small business, uh, a framing business my dad got into because he went and work for somebody for free. He just wanted to have Sundays As, off, yeah. have a six-day-a-week work week. And so uh, he went and convinced somebody to teach him how to do that business. And I, you know, helped. So you helped with the, the the other, the siblings? And with, like, a lot of the things where they couldn't navigate the language. And so I was sort of used to being in like over running my a household. Head. Yeah. <laughs> and so you could deal with the tantrums and now you've got these teenagers and I'm right there with you. My husband and I are always like kind of collaborating on how to present a united front and how to make the right decision and we were raised completely differently and so I'm sure for you guys also. I don't know your husband, but yeah, he was from North Carolina, and so oh, interesting. <laughs> very, yeah, very different backgrounds in a lot of ways. But I think that the hard thing about uh, the teenage phase of uh, a company, which is kind of where I think where Julep is at, and also of uh, of kids, is there is so much that you need to let go and let them figure it out and not be sad about it, that it isn't an end. It's yeah. really sort of the next right phase. And it's hard to figure out what your role is in that, that the definition of mom for me was always physical comfort and having a child on my lap and uh, a lot of these things that I loved about, uh, about younger kids. And I'm trying to figure out, uh, you know, you wake up and uh, I think both being a CEO and a mom, there's some phases that you can really nail, and unfortunately, you can't stay there forever. Then you turn around, and new all surprise, of a sudden, new challenge. <laughs> right? Yeah, and you're like, "Wow, I'm doing all the same things, and I'm feeling really unsuccessful." Yeah, I think that happens in careers and as parents. That if you keep doing the same thing, you can't treat a 17 year old like a four year old. Yeah, and you can't. <laughs> they won't want to be around you. And how are you different? Kind of, do you bring all of you? Would your employees say that they wouldn't be surprised to see you at home and your kids the same thing? Or are you kind of like Jane at work, Jane at home, Jane with your Princeton friends? <laughs> or do you feel at this stage of life that you've been able to kind of be all in one? I am a big fan of have one voice be who you are. Uh, I, that said, things are a little bit different. I probably... Well, these days I try not to as much, but I uh, swear a lot more at home than I do at, at work. Uh, I can be such a sailor. But uh, I think that it's really important to find your voice. And I really didn't do that initially when I went to work. I remember my first um, review as a lawyer. It said, Jane is, you know, is thoughtful, but she's really mousy. <laughs> She doesn't have her voice. I don't don't really think I can see that that side of you. Which of these things has kind of positioned you most to be a founder and CEO and of a beauty cosmetics company? And how did it come to be? (laughs) You know, I had, when I first started Julep, it was really because I had this experience of, of throwing a bridal shower for my girlfriends and finding that we didn't have a place to go where we could you know, just chat and celebrate. So um, if you think about it, like men, typically there's 
sports bars and there's golf and there's sporting events and lots of places where they can go and uh, and connect. And uh, so we met at a spa and we were sort of shushed and told to use our spa voices. And that was really the genesis. No champagne delivered? <laughs> no. And, you know, we were just getting together at one in the afternoon. This was not a, uh, you know, this was not us after a few cocktails. Not, this was us. throwdown spa experience. <laughs> it was our pre-cocktail spa. Uh, and uh, so it was really about solving that problem. But it was also, I think I was just really impatient um, in bigger companies. It's really hard to make decisions. I think uh, I felt like I was um, advocating for one decision a year, maybe like holding one glass ball very carefully, trying not to drop it. Yeah. But what is exciting about being an entrepreneur is that you're making hundreds of decisions a day. Yeah. And they can be small uh, or they can be big for you. Mm-hmm. But uh, Are there some that decisions. you're really proud of and some that you're like, Ugh, I just really am not psyched about that decision? <laughs> I think... Uh, From the outside, it looks like you're doing a lot right. <laughs> but obviously, I'm sure... Yeah, every day there's lots of things I go home and think, um, stupid, stupid, why did you do yeah. that? <laughs> But uh, the things that I'm most proud of are probably little. It's sort of um, all the little things that build up to a culture. So, you know, without having to say, for example, like um, I didn't have to mandate what laundry detergent we used in our parlors. That They knew it had to be organic and... They yeah. just figured that out. And that was when I realized, like, the culture and sort of our values are really carried through. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when one of our employees was um, suffering with, uh, you know, a diagnosis of breast cancer, it was sort of something that we figured out, like, how do we make this work creatively? Let's throw out the rules and figure out what can we do now. And you have to readjust every time there's uh, change in treatment or, you know, remission, you mm-hmm. think, or whatever it is that mm-hmm. uh, that I am amazed at how much right happens from the team without my involvement, before my involvement, that when they I come to that. me with a solution yeah. that uh, it's like, wow, that is way better than what I could have come up with myself for. And, and is, is there a certain great. trait that you look for when you're looking for, I mean, obviously in the parlors, it's different than in the corporate office. But uh, let's talk more about the corporate office. What types of qualities are you looking for in your employees as far as kind of like if they don't have this, they're just not even going to be considered? (laughs) You know, an important thing to me is whether people lean in when they uh, hear about problems. And so I know when I was a consultant, we gave a lot of these case interviews where you sort of give a, a fake situation usually and see how people solve their way through it. Uh, every time I interview, I have a real problem that I am grappling with, and oh, I like to just great. share it. Like, this is the thing that's bugging me right now. And to see some people uh, run out of the room they and panic. head for the hills. I was just thinking, <laughs> panic. And some people lean in and are like, tell me more. I, I, I think I can help you here. I think I can do this. And the energy, do they lean in when they hear a hairy problem or do they lean out is a really important thing because it's not something that you get taught in school. Um, I don't think it's about fancy Ivy League degrees as, you know, uh, pedigreed as sort of uh, my background appears. It's not something that I necessarily look for in other people. I've hired plenty of people from Harvard Business School. Well, I think the combo of your grit and your background combined with the pedigree, the pedigree says a story of like this person's obviously got the raw brain power. She's smart. But you could have all of that and not know how to like 
navigate through life. How to like solve your way and I out interviewed of a lot of, I Honestly, I interviewed <laughs> a lot of people like that in New York that were like spoon-fed that pedigree. Was, they were told from preschool, this will be your course. And then they didn't know themselves and they didn't know how to figure it out. And they didn't know how to, they didn't have the work ethic that you have. Well, I think that's happening a lot in colleges today is that there's this continuation of an idea of perfection and people graduate wanting to continue to get A's. And that's the number one thing I tell young people is that no one's going to give you an A uh, on work, really. And um, I also say that to young parents. Uh, no one can look at the totality of my day and say, hey, you get an A for the day because you, <laughs> you, you know. You failed something. <laughs> you either got... like sucking as a mom, sucking as a friend. <laughs> right, or like the, the whole, how the whole thing comes together. Nobody sees that. You can be with people all day long and feel lo really lonely at the end of the day because yeah. nobody sees everything that you do. And that's why you've got to be that person for yourself. And it's about I love how that. do you solve problems, not trying to get to some standard where you get some external recognition. Right. And so this is more me selfishly asking, but I'm assuming that whoever's listening would want to know this too, because one of the things I struggle with is just time management and how to get it all done. And I feel like I have this gut feeling that you're probably really good at being mindful and deliberate about your time and organization. Are there tools? Are there like takeaways that I can have? And maybe no. take, maybe not take. You know, I am constantly. Do you lay your clothes out the night before? Like, what do you do to get yourself? <laughs> um, I my friend Loretta calls it like, kind of planted, centered on her feet, not on her heels. And I feel like I'm often on my heels. Yeah, I think a lot of us are, especially when we're just trying to survive the day. Mm -hmm. So uh, I feel like I'm more there than not. Uh, um, but I am constantly playing with organizational tools. Um, I was using Wonderlist for a while. Now I use To Do. I have, mm -hmm. you know, go back from, no. I'm using Trello and I really like it. And then my <laughs> team is using Slack, but they're like, but you need to use Slack if we're going to use Slack. Yes, and, that's and a great I communication it. tool. It's, it's, uh, I don't know that that sort of a get your day organized No, tool. but it's a great communication exactly. tool. But just any tools. Yes. Um, I use Cozy. For the family. Yeah, and I'm constantly reevaluating that. I'm going back and forth between digital and paper. and Me too. Uh, And, you know, I haven't found exactly the right balance. I do think yeah. uh, for calendaring, um, I, there was this awful show in the 80s, 90s. It was called The Highlander. I never saw uh, it. And there was a, a tagline, there can be only one. Um, but I use that for calendaring all the time. Uh, the main rule is there can... There can be only one. Only one calendar? Uh, that if you, if there are multiple sources of the truth, you'll get lost in where you put things. So family, work, everything is, is on in one. one calendar. So I have mine like that, too. It's integrated. But then sometimes they're on top of each other. And yesterday I missed a meeting because I had, like, my kid's ballet on top of one of my meetings. And I'm like, ah. So, yeah, I'm always I, looking I have, for um, new. I left my kids at school <laughs> by accident because uh, when I'm they sure were I'm sure they'll be on the couch school, about that later in life. Yeah. Well, they were um, uh, the first Wednesday of every week, every month, they had early closure. And so one time I forgot and I felt so terribly about it. And I said to my husband, I'm the worst mom. I'm never going to do this again. And he said, 
you're okay, and you're totally going to do this again. <laughs> and that's okay. And we love you, and they're going to be just fine. Well, the funniest thing is I was telling the story, and they didn't even remember it. So now I'm going to yeah. remind them again. I always but... joke. My, one of my daughters was telling me something that I had done wrong, and I was like, well, I'm sure you'll be in therapy about this later, talking about me and how I somehow. <laughs> or they'll forget um, it. Or and they'll forget it. Just, and she was laughing. Not, she was you like, know, really? obsessing over it. Because <laughs> we're hard on ourselves. So one of the other things that I loved reading about you is that you, how did you meet your husband? Uh, we actually met in law school. Okay. Uh, we were in the same entryway. I, um, you know, he likes to say that I uh, went to get him to help us tap a keg because I was hosting an Asian American Law Students Association. He was like, "This is a terrible stereotype that you guys don't know how to tap a keg." That's so <laughs> perfect. Okay, and so I love that you proposed to him. There's not that many women that have that story. You literally <laughs> proposed to him? I did. Did I, you get down on one knee type of thing? No, I uh, had a watch engraved with Marry Me. Um, and the middle letters have rubbed off now. So it says Marmy, which is like, <laughs> that's more appropriate. Um, but the funny thing is, is that the jewelry store wouldn't sell it to me. Um, I bought it on credit because I didn't have a job at the time and we paid it off over years. But it was a solid gold um, Bauman Mercier. And they uh, said, what if he says no? Like and it just made oh me like think, we won't take it back oh, right that's that they were so worried about me it's like when when like, a man comes in to buy a engagement ring do you say what if what she if says he, no right and do that's, I look like somebody that nobody would ever marry <laughs> that's unbelievable <laughs> yeah I really had to convince them to sell me this watch to take my money <laughs> that's actually unbelievable so there's so many examples of that like would this actually happen to a man. Yeah, right? I no. know you're passionate about this subject and women, and, and it's so uh, relevant and current right now, it feels more than ever. Well, I think we are all the sum of the experiences, and I uh, definitely feel like the experiences I've gone through as a woman and as an immigrant uh, have, you know, have helped me figure my way through life and to creatively sort of uh, come up with my own set of rules. And I don't think that uh, I, I don't I can't even answer the question of what would I be like as a man, <laughs> that all of these things are uh, my strengths and my areas, my weaknesses are uh, related to my experience, my gender and my cultural background. So yeah. I totally embrace that. I don't think that there's a way to to not. Um, I completely understand when people don't want to be labeled as a woman CEO, they want to be labeled, Just a CEO. Right. Um, but given the fact that, hey, only 2% of venture funding goes to women-run businesses, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's really important uh, for me to talk about gender. No, absolutely. Um, You're right. And to also pull the, people along yes. and to make it seem visible because it's not, uh, I think we're at a moment, but we're not taking big steps forward or backwards. I think it's so incremental and it is like running a company. It's two steps forward, uh, uh, you know, a step and three quarters backwards. Mm -hmm. And it's that constant battle. So we have to have optimism that things are better today. I wish that they, they feel were. That they, they feel a little bit better in that through social media and just through everything that's happening, it's being talked about so much. And I feel that women are doing more to propel one another than they have in the past versus just talking about it. There's actual action happening that I'm seeing. Um, I wish that I would feel more confident that my daughter wouldn't be sexually harassed, that her opportunities would not be limited because she's a girl. And I don't see that. I don't see venture financing, frankly, in her lifetime being 50-50. I don't see board 
you know, seats. Well, you saw the, the California law that just passed about public boards. Yes. Um, that's a step in the right direction. Huge step in the right direction. That's very yeah. exciting. I was really um, excited to see that. And I think it'll just set the tone for the rest of the states to kind of The thing that I don't think people understand about equality is that mathematically, if every open seat is filled even completely fairly, like proportionately, I I actually ran this as a model because I couldn't believe it um, about affirmative action. If you said every open job today was completely fairly doled out, Mm -hmm. um, which we know doesn't happen, but let's say that, you know, starting today you could mandate fairness. Uh, that it would still take hundreds of years to overcome the history. Yes. And so there needs to be some bold creative action in order to break that bind so that we're not looking at problems as four-generation type solutions, but we're actually trying to make as big of a difference as we can today. Yeah, I think that it is a huge thing. And as a recruiter, I mean, I have a lot of clients who are very specifically asking for female engineers or female marketing leaders, and they're trying to balance it out. And I'm always saying to kind of start early because it's much more difficult to be like the first female engineer on a team of like 30. And there's some companies who are really taking it seriously and others who are just kind of saying it. Um, what do you guys do at Julep to, I mean, it's obviously the, <laughs> the subject matter. I'm sure you have a, a line out well, the door of, for people that want to work there. But Yeah, um, one of my favorite things about Julep is that, uh, you know, the kind of people we attract in both. Uh, we are a primo- uh, primarily women in terms of the senior leadership team, but um, both the men and the women that we've attracted uh, care about something bigger than themselves. And I think the fact that we put that as a stake in the ground in terms of how we wanted to talk about beauty differently, to not have it be about perfection and not have it be a, a stressful moment in a woman's day, mm-hmm. uh, that everything about our brand and the way that our company operates and, and you know, the clean, green environment and healthcare benefits we give in the parlors, that all of those pieces uh, serve to attract people who care about those things, both men and women. You know, when I was hiring male engineers, people told me it was hand-to-hand combat. They were like, you're going to have to learn to be good at video games and go and, and play video games with what? these bros. This is one piece of advice that, uh, uh, you know, an was entrepreneur an, gave oh, me. Oh, an entrepreneur. And, uh, you know, I was like, that's not going to be very fun for him to play a video game with me because I'm going to be dead in two seconds. And <laughs> then what so will that, that prove? Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't that. I really found that the people who came, um, and it's not because they have sisters or mothers or, you know, uh, well, everybody has a has a biological mother anyway, but uh, it was really that they cared about the mission, that they cared about the fact that we we're a company trying to do something bigger than just the bottom line. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've done a good job of conveying that to investors, raising over $70 million, seven <laughs> rounds. Um, how, how was that process for you? How many did you have to pitch in that first kind of seed round and who initially invested? How did well, you get the, them? My, uh, my first investors were uh, my former bosses from BCG. So that was amazing. One of my very first investors was Steve Gunby, who ran BCG for North America. And, uh, you know, he used to strike fear in the hearts of so many people. He was very rigorous and no BS. And one time I saw his phone number come up on my cell phone and I fell out of my chair. <laughs> 
as a grown woman, that was my response. And so, uh, you know, he's not somebody that you ever take lightly. And one time I was talking to him and, you know, catching up, he was trying to recruit me back to BCG um, when I was at Starbucks. And I was telling him about this idea for Julep. And uh, finally, he said to me, is this like, um, you know, is this like NPR? Are you going to not stop talking until I give you a check. And so I didn't even know how to ask for money. So as you say, sort of, I've raised this money. I didn't know the words to close the deal. What do you say? Do you say, give me a check? Like, do you want to invest? Sounds so too he, impersonal. he kind of served it up. He served it up. And I literally still didn't know how to close it, right? Like, well, apparently you learned. <laughs> I figured it out. Actually, I really had to think about what words I uh, would be comfortable with. And I landed on the phrase, do you want to participate? Uh, because that felt like what I wanted to have in terms of co-adventurers mm -hmm. and sort of uh, a phrase that could come out of my mouth that I, you know, you would feel, feel like comfortable too... saying. Yeah. And do you still get, like, if he calls now, is it like, hey, or is it like, ah, I better be on my, <laughs> on my A game? I think there's still a little bit of the A-game. I think I have a special place in my heart for people who took me more seriously than I was willing to take myself. So as I was writing this business plan at night, I didn't, you know, I wouldn't have said, I'm definitely going to go do this. It was sort of something I kept talking about. And uh, I don't think that I was ready mm -hmm. um, to take myself that seriously. Yeah. And so it's a big gift. I try to think about how I can do that for other people whenever I can. It's such a gift to take somebody seriously, especially yes. someone who might not be in a situation where they would do that for themselves. Yeah, where they just believe in you. But it sounds like your vision originally was for the parlors. And then when did you transition and kind of pivot also to include, I mean, huge e-commerce? <laughs> well, we always did products for the parlors, and it was important to me at the time. Uh, there were, you know, all of the major brands of nail polish had formaldehyde in mm -hmm. it, and so there were these ingredients that I thought should not be part of, uh, you know, any brand that I wanted to share with my daughter or my sisters or my mom. And uh, and then at the same time, um, there were a lot of pieces around uh, Korean beauty before it was a thing. Um, I always like to say I I've been Korean my whole life and the last couple of years have been the only time it's been actually cool. <laughs> like there's well, I, Korean I know, street food. I bought the, the charcoal um, conjac sponge. Conjac yeah. sponge. I need that. And then also there's so many products that I want to buy right now, but I want your kind of yes on which products you prioritize. Like you're st stuck on a deserted island, which julep products do you <laughs> take with you? I mean, obviously we want the glossy lips. We want all of it, but uh, net net. Well, if we you're on have? a desert island, it depends on the you situation. You want to protect your skin yes. and your hair and your nails and like all of it. Like what? So uh, we have the world's best sunscreen. It is an invisible sunscreen, so it's not whitening. Uh, so you can wear it. It's UVA, UVB, and um, uh, SPF 40. And no so parabens. No parabens on any of our products, and not uh, we're cruelty free as well. Um, so. No excuses, we called it, because I wanted to name all of our products something that a girlfriend would call it. And mm -hmm. this is no excuses because there's no excuse not to wear it now. It's not like, oh, it's whitening or I don't yeah. have time. Or... It's the equivalent of smoking cigarettes. It's like, <laughs> so you're so like, we're going to look back on it and be like, those people, what were they thinking? Right. They don't wear sunscreen. No, you're right. So uh, there's no excuse. That's a, that's um, one of my super favorites. And then I, I feel like every woman uh, over 30 should be using uh, cleansing oil as a way to 
um, cleanse your face. How did you learn all this? Did you just do a deep dive into this industry? Or have you always been interested in it? <laughs> you know, I've always been interested in women and girlfriends. I think uh, if you met me 15 years ago, honestly, uh, there were a handful of beauty products that I used. But I went back and looked at my wedding photos the other day. And, you know, I just did my own makeup. And I don't think anybody ever told me to do anything about my brows. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just so funny, my wedding pictures. But, uh, uh, I, you know, it was about trying to come up with the most innovative, best ingredient products. Like, mm -hmm. what would a girlfriend design for you if she was trying to give you the best? That's how it feels. Honestly, in the stores and on the site, that's how it feels. And as a Scorpio, um, I was looking at the different colors. I like the Scorpio. You've yep. got the whole um, Zodiac. Exactly. One. I <laughs> love that. super fun. <laughs> I love that. I actually like, and usually I don't like anything Scorpio as far as the colors chosen or I do like my horoscope and my sign, but what sign are you? Pisces. Oh, you're Pisces. Interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. Do you follow all that? Uh, not as much as, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> not into all the like, psychic readers and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes that's a fun girlfriend, you know, thing to do just as like a, it, it creates some sort of response in some way. Like, no, that's not me, actually. Just like personality assessments do or any of that. It's kind of interesting sometimes. I think I am such a big fan of volition and the fact that I get to choose my own adventure that I have never been interested in sort of things that uh, lay anything out for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And sometimes people take their kind of their sign or their horoscope a little too seriously. But I have to say, I do love this line. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I do love it. So back to julep really quickly. So you came up with the name. What does julep mean? What is that? Well, mean? it is a cocktail. Oh, oh <laughs> exactly. I went to the um, horse races. We had juleps. Right. Mint juleps. Well, I um, knew from the beginning that I wanted a name that was about girlfriends and uh, togetherness. And so there were a bunch of different names um, that I, I love brainstormed. The name <laughs> I, do I love too. the logo. I love the colors. I love the drink. <laughs> I love mint juleps. And so now that you guys, you guys got acquired in 2016. We did. So how does this, how does that work? Uh, so this is the sort of teenage phase of life. Um, mm -hmm. So it was a uh, transaction that um, Warburg Pincus out of New York uh, funded an entity called Gland Sale. And um, they acquired us and Laura Geller and Clark's Botanicals, these three brands together to try to, um, you know, have one plus one plus one equal more than three. Mm -hmm. And so what does this mean for you? What is, is it? How is your role different now? I think that I got to step back more from day-to-day uh, -day operations and uh, sort of be more of a spiritual guide mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, a cheerleader, which I, I love. And I am um, working on a book, and I am actually, actually also have a uh, nonprofit initiative called Check First. And what's that? So I'm trying to get uh, women everywhere to sort of ask some thoughtful questions in that one moment of leverage they have Bef uh, when they have a job offer, but before they accept. And so this is so perfect for, I mean, fuel talent. Tell me what you're doing. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe I can incorporate it. So I've it. crowdsourced some questions. Okay. And um, what I really want to do um, in that phase right now, and I'm hitting the road to go to some college campuses uh, this fall to 
inspire women to take that moment of power and try to use it in a thoughtful way. So how can you ask questions? Um, And a lot of the time, I've found that when we're recruiting someone and I ask them, is there anything else you want to know, that candidates are so wowed by having the offer that they, you know, that they don't ask anything more. (laughs) No, I think I've figured everything out. Uh, And I think there's some really interesting questions, not like the ones you can find on the website about how many women are on the board. But, you know, one of the ones that I really like is, can you tell me how many women my immediate manager has mentored? Can you tell me how many women come back from maternity leave? Um, wow, Jane, I this is do awesome. this all the time. By the way, I'm shopping for a car. I'm trying to find an electric car. But I walked in um, to three car dealerships last week, and I asked, "Do you have any women salespeople?" And uh, two of them had zero, had none. And so, you know, it's just a way of, uh, I'll, you know, I. Um, You don't have to commit to sort of, I won't buy a car here or whatever, but it took me five seconds just to ask the question. They felt some shame in saying they had zero. And I said, oh, interesting. And we moved from there. When I hire a law firm, when I have worked with recruiting firms, I always ask, hey, how many women are in your senior leadership? And it takes me two seconds to get that question out. I love this. So check first. And so where are you in the development of it? You're just kind of... I have a logo. Okay. I'll... I'll you're, you said you're crowdsourcing. Are you crowdfunding? <laughs> I mean, I love this. So this is something that I figured that as I was thinking through all the things happening with Me Too and uh, the past year, I wanted to do something where um, what's low-hanging fruit without huge amounts of time on my side? Mm-hmm. Um, what are little things? And frankly, without huge amounts of time or energy on the woman's side, well, it's just right? just an awareness. Right. And if an amazing thing that... Uh, you know, somebody corrected me on the other day is that, hey, men and women can do this right. That moment of leverage, because uh, we all want to be part of the solution, but we don't know how. I and love one this. thing that I really think is that it doesn't have to, you don't, you know, you don't have to solve world hunger today. It's one of my um, colleagues, uh, my VP of marketing used to always say this, uh, if we're trying to solve world hunger, can we just get some snacks on the table right now? It's such a great mom thing. It's great. But what are the things you can do right now? Like I always tell people, if you're at a meeting, um, interrupt the interrupter. If you see a woman being interrupted, go ahead and interrupt them. You know, that like to say, excuse me, I, you know, she I was talking to speak. I want to finish hearing what yes. she's saying. Jane, or, <laughs> <laughs> what Jane Doe is saying. Right. And if there's uh, someone who says something smart, like reiterate that. There's so many little things that we can do to start making a difference. You don't have to wait until you're in power or, you know, that you're on the board of a Fortune 5 company. I love this. Let me know how I can help. This is this hits a chord with me. Yeah. Well, I, really I would like say it. if you're if you're out there listening right now, <laughs> just think about the easy questions you can ask. We can all do it, and it's super friendly. It doesn't have to be confrontational, and you don't have to feel like uh, an obligation to do further with that. Just asking the question, I think, is helpful. I feel like I could learn so much from you. <laughs> We've covered like barely. <laughs> We've barely scratched the surface. Is there anything that we haven't covered? It seems like is there a motto that you live by, or something that you kind of do you meditate like. How do you know? I'm 
trying to. I'm so bad at meditating. I'm really, um, you know, I, uh, the thing that I always say to people is that life begins at the end of your comfort zone. I think that's the biggest thing for me. I used to think that everybody else had a rule book or that they were walking around comfortable in their own skin. And I was the only one who didn't understand the rules of the game. And uh, it was actually helpful in my experience at BCG and actually being in boardrooms with CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and realizing they're just making it up too. Like these are people who are smart and capable, um, but... Uh, it's not like they are, you know, completely comfortable in their own skin and yeah. that they're, they have the exact right way of doing things. We're all making it up as we go along. I love that. Well, if any of our listeners want to learn more, you can email us at podcast at fueltalent.com. And to follow Jane on Twitter and Instagram, she's at Jane Park Julep. And um, hopefully you're going to also post some stuff about your book and about the nonprofit and some of the other things that you're engaged in outside of Julep. Um, this is so fun. For hours, maybe <laughs> over, for over a me. Julep cocktail. <laughs> Love it. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Thank you.